Well, good morning, Riv. What's up? How are we doing? Feeling good? My name is uh, Ronnie, as Pastor James was just saying. And yeah, I serve as, as a church planting resident, is what it's called, down at this church called Resurrection Church in, in Lincoln Park. And thank you, because I'm, I'm guessing most of you know this, but, but your church um, and your pastor, the one with like the, it's like the beard and earring like combo, <laughs> that, that like thing he's got going on, uh, have been a huge help to my family and I so far. And, and I, I think that Riv has, has been a part of uh, helping start, starting like dozens of churches in its history, and we get to be a part of that with you all. So, so seriously, thank you. Um, like James was saying, we are uh, praying and moving towards planting a new church just north of Detroit um, in kind of like the Royal Oak, Detroit Zoo general area, fall 2024. If you know somebody that lives there, if you know something about there, um, if you just want to talk to me about it, I really would love to, to meet you after the service and um, get to know you. And yeah, it's just an area of one of the many, I'd say, areas of, of, of deep gospel need in the metro Detroit area. We want to go take our shot at making disciples and preaching the gospel and seeing what, what God would do to bring together a new congregation um, there. So Isaiah 11, okay? Flip in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. We're in this uh, beginning of this Advent series, and the theme of today is hope, okay? The theme of today is hope. As, as you're turning over there to Isaiah 11, one thing uh, you need to know about my wife, Caitlin, and I is that we're recovering Cleveland Browns fans, okay? And I know being here in Michigan that that might not mean a ton to a lot of you, and, and if you don't like football, that's fine. This won't take too long, but we're recovering Cleveland Browns fans. We're, we're Lions all in right now, like ride or die, but we're kind of just making that, making that adjustment. Caitlin's family is all from Cleveland, so I just kind of inherited that with them. And one of the things you need to know about being a Browns fan is that they have been on a desperate search for a quarterback for literally like the existence of the whole franchise, okay? Desperate search, like the, the city, the fan base, the, the players, they've been, they've been waiting for there to one day be a quarterback that can lead the team to success. Do you know how many quarterbacks they've had and tried out since 1999? 30. It's quite a few. 30, just kind of shuffling them in. L listen to this from an article I read <laughs> last week about them. There are quarterback factories, and then there's the factory of sadness, which is what they call the <laughs> Cleveland Browns. Somehow, the Browns, they managed to be both. The Browns have been searching for an answer to the quarterback position since Bernie Kosar walked the streets of the land, and they have had plenty of opportunities to find the guy, but have come up empty at just about every turn. And uh, there's obviously a lot more drama even happened with the Browns quarterbacks in the last couple of years, and even today, but I won't get into it. Um, when we think about this theme of hope, for me, the, the Browns, just kind of their sad saga, it's, it's a perfect illustration really of, of what a train wreck it is when we put our hope in other human leaders to rescue us in this life. Okay, and the Browns, their whole thing's been going on for 30 plus years, but in my uh, kind of morning Bible reading plan right now, I'm in Kings and Chronicles in the Old Testament. And what you see there is actually not for 30 years, but for hundreds of years. Okay, the nation of Israel constantly hoping that their next king would finally be the one. Finally be the one to lead them into this life of flourishing that God had promised them. And, and maybe you know the story, but over and over and over again in the Old Testament, these kings, they fail to deliver. Okay, and the name, it's a lot, or the, the list is, is a lot longer than the list on, of the Cleveland Browns quarterbacks. And you know this, the stakes are way higher. Israel's kings, they consistently 
kind of never live up to the hope of the people. They, they were sinners themselves. They lead the people into sin. Oftentimes it's leading them towards like worshiping other gods and making alliances with these other countries instead of trusting the Lord, these political alliances. And, and, and here's the thing, Isaiah, what we're gonna read today, the, the people that he is speaking to and, and writing about, th- those people lived thousands of years ago, but they were facing the same like kind of core human challenges and questions that we ask today. They were looking around at the world and kind of asking like, how, how can we live a full life of peace and prosperity and justice, you know, true flourishing? And more than that, who can we trust to lead us, okay, into that kind of a society? Who can protect us from our enemies and from all the things that, that threaten our peace? Is there any hope that this world could actually, under human leadership, be the place that God has promised it could be. And the kings of Israel, what they consistently do as you read their stories is they, they look inward and they lead the people to look outward at these surrounding nations and it proves hopeless over and over and over again, okay? And so the ESV study Bible, as it looks at this big book, Isaiah, it says, you know, one of the major questions that this book of Isaiah raises is this. In what will God's people trust in for their salvation? human strategies of self-rescue or prophetic promises of divine grace? And really, to, br- to bring it in here, that's the question of Advent. That's, that's the question the Advent season invites us to ask today in our modern world because every day in our lives, we're faced with answering these types of questions. Like, what, what hope is there really for, for my life, my, my family's life, this, this nation, this world, just with all the challenges that we're facing, what hope is there really? Is joy and peace and justice for all people ever going to really come? Or are we going to keep getting let down by, you know, the, the next leader, the next movement, organization, the next big idea? Isaiah, as he spoke and led and wrote, he was concerned about this question for his own generation, but he actually spoke and wrote for us too. And the answer that he announces again and again throughout his book is this, the only hope of the world is bound up in one man. It's an astounding claim, really. One man, the the only hope of the world bound up in one man. And we, you know, we as Christians, we know, like, oh yeah, our hope is supposed to be in Jesus, but can't that truth really like lose its wonder for us. Like we know it's the right answer, hope in Jesus, but like, you know, it's on our Christmas cards. It's, it's on all these different songs on the, the radio. We sing about it. But listen, when, when the real temptations of life, the, the real pressures, the real challenges, the real sufferings really press down on us, doesn't our vision of that hope get fuzzy? Or we, we kind of are, are looking out in the world and, it, and it, we know the right answer, but it just looks... It looks vague, like we know we're supposed to hope in Christ alone, but, but our, our bank account or that, that powerful politician that seems like he's got some answers or, or our pastor or that, that life hack that seems like it might really work or just our own strength, our own work ethic. Those types of things seem to be the thing we can like really grab onto, okay? really trust in for protection and for providing a good life. 
And Isaiah, he was a person like us. He lived among people like us. And just like us, they, they had to sift through kind of all these competing ideas of what could protect them, what could save them. Old Testament commentator, uh, Barry Webb, he, he looks at Isaiah and, and listen to what he says about his life. As Isaiah kind of looked at all the options for what we could hope in, he says, Isaiah knew it was a lie. The truth behind appearances was that the Lord himself is the supreme ruler and would determine the fate of both Assyria, so the enemies of his people, and Judah, his own people. Isaiah lived by the old creed. Ahaz and Hezekiah, these these kings, they found it hard to translate this hope into practical politics. The common people, so us, they, they gave it only lip service. In Sennacherib, one of these enemies of the nation, he mocked it as madness. But listen to this. But Isaiah charted his whole life course by it. Advent is an opportunity to remember that the only hope of the world is bound up in in one man. And like Isaiah, to chart the entire course of our life on it. Isaiah 11, what we're going to look at in just a moment, is a text that kind of brings into focus who this one man is, right? Isaiah, he had a vision and he wants us to see what he saw so that we will build our lives on the only hope, listen, that we really have. So here's how I'll break it down. We're going to look at Isaiah 11, who we are, who Jesus is, and then finally, the hope that only Jesus gives. So first, who we are. Look with me again at verse 1, Isaiah chapter 11. It says, Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. He's given us this picture, okay? Imagine it, imagine it with me. Isaiah gives us this picture of, of a stump with a, a shoot growing into a branch kind of coming out of it. It's this, it's this picture of, of new life, right? Unexpectedly coming out of something that had, had died. And he's saying Jesse has become like a stump. You ask, who is, who is Jesse? Well, Jesse was the father of King David, if you remember that from the Old Testament at all. So he's saying that kind of from the line of David, from the line of all these kings that had failed and failed and failed, that ultimately didn't lead the people into the life they had hoped for, he's picturing Israel in, in ruins. And think about it, a stump doesn't just become a stump on its own, right? What has to happen to it? Someone had to have seen that living tree and chopped it down. And you know who that was in this, in this situation? How did the stump of Jesse become the stump of Jesse? It was God. God had brought judgment on his own people. We see this in chapter 10, just before chapter 11. So kind of the greater context of this, just before this, Isaiah, he describes how God had actually judged his own people by raising up this nation of Assyria to conquer them. He even says that like Assyria is like an ax in my hands that I use to chop down Israel because of their pride in in themselves, okay? They're they're worshiping of other gods. They're trusting in everyone and everything but the Lord. Israel thought they were like this prosperous tree. They thought that who they were and what they were growing towards was, was working, but God cut them down because he said the thing that's growing here is actually evil. It's like if you had a tree in your backyard and you found out that it was it was poisoned at the root. And even though it was really there and really growing, the fruit that it was bearing was poisonous and you had no choice but to chop it down. So Isaiah says, God used Assyria as his ax on Israel. But also, 
he brings the ax to, to prideful Assyria as well. Look at, look at verse 18 in chapter 10 about what he says, not, not about Israel this time, but what he does to Assyria. It says, the glory of his forest, and you really got to picture this, the glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, so Assyria, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. And then in verse 33, right before chapter 11, behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with, with terrifying power. The great and height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. These are the last verses. This is the scene before we get to chapter 11. This, this picture of, of God swinging his ax to reduce Israel and Assyria to stumps. You, you can think about it this way. All of their years of effort, okay, and innovation and, and progress, everything they'd been building and working for, fueled by their sin, leveled in an instant by the Lord of hosts. And so this scene, it really stands as a warning to all people that everything we build from our own strength, for our own glory, and in opposition to our creator, it will not stand a chance if and when he decides to judge us. It's this great warning that stands out there for us. And listen, it's also a warning that the idols, okay, the false gods, these false saviors that we put our trust in, they always end up oppressing us. And they actually make oppressors out of us. In the New Testament language, the Apostle Paul, he puts it like this. He says, you know, the wages of sin, what sin always earns every time is death. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Hoping in false gods, it always leads to death. It puts us under the judgment of God. And this was Israel with Assyria. And this is you. And this is me with whoever or whatever we hope in instead of God. Okay, if we put our, our hope, if we're banking on fulfillment from our career, it will eventually enslave us. It will oppress us. It will, it will make us a slave. We'll never be enough. It, it'll slowly suck the life out of us. If your hope for joy, if you're looking to be completed by your spouse or by somebody that you're pursuing to be a spouse, they will always let you down or you'll crush them because they, they end up not being worthy of your full worship. You see how that works. It's interesting when you look at the Old Testament, I mean, idolatry is just such a major theme in the whole Bible and especially in the Old Testament, they're worshiping all these false gods and it's always, you know, it's always flowing out of idolatry, false God worship, false, false trust is injustice. We horizontally treat each other in dehumanizing ways because we worship things that are not God. That, that's how it works. We could go on and on. Pastor Ray Ortland, who uh, wrote a commentary on Isaiah, this, this is what he says. He says, this is the question that Isaiah wants each of us to think through. Okay, so you ready? Where do I get my security, my, my coping skills, my confidence for the future? Many salvations are vying for our allegiance and every false support we lean on turns around and bites us. We, we do lean on forces that strike us, abuse us, sneer at us. 
We must learn to examine ourselves. When I am stricken with disillusionment, emptiness, self-hatred, when these emotional undercurrents are dragging me down. Let me say that again. When, when you're stricken with disillusionment, emptiness, when you're feeling that, that self-hatred, when you have this kind of emotional undercurrent underneath you, here, here's the question he says that Isaiah wants us to ask. What false savior am I leaning on? This is like the, the deep self-awareness that Isaiah wrote for these people to have and for, for us to have. Okay, Cleveland Browns fans, they'll always be looking to the next draft. Americans, we're always going to be looking to the next election. But Isaiah is saying God's people must always know that every human leader is only destined to be a stump. Okay, like we can't save ourselves from what's wrong with us and what's wrong with the world. Like the, the very best, this is what this image is pointing out, the very best that humanity can do on our own strength for our own glory is amount as a stump. And so what Isaiah sees, but before we get to our verses in 11, what he sees is really just, it's like this like post-apocalyptic vision of just a dead world. Used to be all these trees, but it's just been chopped down. It's just, it's stumps. Like it's dark. You imagine like there's like a random crow flying around. It's just like, Aah! and it's like, there's nothing, there's nothing there. So it's like Isaiah's like, this is what happens when humans lead their own lives. This is it. Stumps, the stump of Jesse. But then verse one of chapter 11. The only hope we have is bound up in one man. And Isaiah says, this man, he, he came forth like a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Out of the rubble of human failure emerges the hope of the world. And so for you, if you're beginning to see and experience how like everything you lean on ends up cutting you down or it falls down on its own, like it fails you, it disappoints you. If you're beginning to see that like, man, any, anything you really put your hope in and trust in, it, it, it cuts you down or it gets cut down. If you're beginning to experience that, you're ready to see Jesus for who he is. And if your hope in Jesus, it feels you know it's the right answer, but it feels vague and fuzzy and flimsy. This Advent season, what you're being invited to is to, to actually look and, and pay attention to how Isaiah describes Jesus here in these next verses. Look at verse one again. This is who Jesus is. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Okay, so it's, it's important here to realize what, what he's doing. He's saying, you know, Jesus, he, he comes from the same biological line as the fallen kings of Israel. Like he's a, he's a true descendant of King David as he was promised to be. And then he appears on the scene, lives in obscurity 2,000 years ago. Like all that really happened. And, and yet he really stands alone in human history. So even, even people and religions that have uh, refused to like acknowledge that Jesus was God refuse to acknowledge his divinity, they've looked at the fruit of his life. They've looked at his character and his teaching and said, this is the most beautiful, greatest human life to ever live. Even if they refuse to acknowledge him of God, they, they, they can't disagree that like he, he stands out. 
But Jesus of Nazareth was not merely a good man. Isaiah says, look at verse 2, he was, he was filled with the Spirit of God. It says, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so, so everyone in Israel knew as they looked back at their history, as they looked around what was going on, the, one of the things that they, they all knew is that things only went truly well for them when God was with them. Things only went well when God was with them. When, like when God's spirit showed up, leaders led well, enemies were defeated, true flourishing happened. And as Isaiah looked forward to the Messiah here, he saw a leader that was fully filled with the spirit of God. This, this is like the difference between Jesus and everyone else, okay? As you, as you stack them up in world history. Plenty of leaders in the Old Testament were said to be like anointed with the spirit, right? Empowered with the spirit, but the wisdom the wisdom, the understanding, the, the counsel, the might, the knowledge, the awareness that Jesus of Nazareth walked with that you can read about in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, it was unique to him. He never sinned. He always followed the spirit as he led others. And that, Isaiah says, is what makes him uniquely qualified to be the ruler of the world. Look at verses three through five. Says, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. So, the famous world, Mahatma Gandhi, he was a famous humanitarian world leader. He uh, has a famous quote that a lot of people have really grabbed onto. He says, the true measure of any society is how it treats its most vulnerable members. Have you guys heard this before? How, how, it, how it treats its, the weakest among them. That is the true measure of a society. And every civilization has failed at that. Every society that has, has risen up because every human kingdom is it's poisoned at the root by sin and self-interest. It's this bent that we have towards accumulating and then using our power to actually uh, marginalize the weak and push out the weak and at worst harm the weak. The weakest among us. Did you catch what Isaiah is saying here about the, the, the future ruler of the world? It says, hey, in the Messiah's kingdom... He will not fail at this. He says that Jesus, he, he will delight in the fear of the Lord, meaning that he will love to live and lead as God himself would. He won't be like Israel's leaders or the surrounding nations whose, whose idolatry always led to injustice. Isaiah says he's gonna lead in, in righteousness. How beautiful is that? He's gonna lead in righteousness towards the poor and equity towards the weak. There's a lot of us that are part of conversations today about like, how could we, how can we have a more just and equitable society for, for truly all people? Isaiah, he says, that's only going to happen at the reign of King Jesus. And it's important to notice here that, that Isaiah's vision of the Messiah is, is of a real spirit-filled human leader. Like he's, he's a real human being. But did you notice He's the type of human leader who can, uh, how does it say it, wipe out evil with the rod of his mouth 
and kill the bad guys by breathing on them. <laughs> it says, have you ever seen a president or a prime minister that can do that? Have you ever seen a pastor that can do that? Navy SEALs can't even do that. <laughs> and what Isaiah is doing, right? What Isaiah is doing is he's, he's clarifying and focusing our hope on this coming human leader, okay? Painting a picture of what, who he will be. And it becomes really clear at this point that he's no mere mortal, He's not only perfect in his character, but he's more powerful than any human being could ever be. In in the New Testament, the apostle John, John John was one of Jesus' best friends. Like they ate together, they slept together, they traveled together, they they were on the road together. Like he really walked with and loved the real human being, Jesus of Nazareth. But then he wrote this whole book called The Gospel of John, basically making the point that, that this Jesus of Nazareth, who was my best friend, he was not just a good man. He was the God man. John knew that the whole Bible it was full of these pointers, this, this tension to the fact of like, who, who's going to save the world? Who, how, how is this really going to be made right? Somehow God himself is going to have to come down. And there's a lot of people today that think that's totally crazy. Like, to, like totally crazy that there could be this, this reality of a human being who is also God. Like sure, Jesus was good and lived this beautiful life, but he couldn't have been God. And listen, there was a lot of people in Isaiah's day that thought that was totally crazy as well. And then everything Isaiah said about him came true. Isaiah was writing this 800 years before the birth of Christ. And it is wild to look back on, on the things that Isaiah says about nations rising and falling. And like, like he's, he's, he's predicting and prophesying and looking out at things that ended up really happening in history. And then this man, Jesus, walks on the scene. And John 12, 41, John says, you know, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory all the way back then. And he spoke of him. See, for so many of us, I really do believe like our, our hope is so shaky because our Jesus is too small. We have a Jesus that can, you know, it's like he can fit in our pocket. He's nice to have around. He's got, he's got some motivational things about him. He's got some good insights into life. He even, at a deeper level, he soothes our conscience because he like forgives our sins or like something. You know, he's like nice to have along for the ride as we build our lives and deal with challenges. Like, yeah, I got Jesus in there somewhere. But, but here's the, the point is he doesn't really set the agenda though. Like we're, we're leading our lives. He's along to kind of help and coach us through it and offer some words of comfort. We're not actually looking for him to lead us. And you know, that's actually a really clear take on like that, that's, what, that's what sin is. That's, that's sin. It, like when we, when we disobey God's commands or when we sin by trusting in, in someone else or ourselves, what we're doing, okay, what we're doing is we're looking for someone else besides Jesus to lead us. But listen, when you, when you see the Jesus that Isaiah saw, like when you, when you see his, his glory smacking up against the real predicament we are in, in this world. Like you see that he is the, the shoot of Jesse, like the, the chosen hero who comes out of the rubble of our failure. When you see that he is the spirit-filled leader that every other human has, has failed to be, when you see that he is the only one qualified to rule the world with righteousness, powerful enough to wipe out all evil, like you realize he can't fit in my pocket. 
You know, John 10 actually says that we fit in the palm of his hand. The only hope for humanity is bound up in, in one man. Now, what, what is the hope, though? Like, what, what is this only hope that only he can give? You know what I mean? Like, underneath it all, what is it that we really want and, and truly need? What is, what is it that we've been trying to build on our own, okay? And, and always just seeing it amount to a stump. Did you know it's not, it's not uh, only just kind of like a, an improved life or a better life? What Isaiah is going to say is that the thing that we really want, the thing that we really need, the hope that we really need to have is for a better world, a new world. Isaiah 11, shockingly, at least to me, says that the fruit that Jesus produces out of his leadership is a whole new holy world for all people. Look at verse 6. This is the animal's part. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, the young lion and the fattened calf. They'll be together and a child will, will lead them. The cow and the bear, they'll, they'll graze. Their young ones will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit and a toddler will put his hand into a snake den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my holy mountain. For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Through his leadership, King Jesus, he's, he's making the world whole again. There, there's coming a day when, when the corruption that sin brought into God's world will be healed. Like planet Earth, its people, even, even its plants and animals, like it, it has taken a beating because of our sin. Romans chapter eight says this, Paul, he says, creation, it's, it's groaning, it's, it's waiting and longing to be set free from its bondage to corruption. And, and you know what Paul says next? He says, it's in this hope that we are saved. That's, that's the hope. The hope is for a, a wholeness that we can't seem to manufacture on ourselves. And Isaiah 11 says, that's what Jesus is going to do. That's what he came to do. And we, we don't fully understand what this looks like. We get different glimpses throughout the pages of Scripture. But what Isaiah is doing here for sure is he's saying, hey, there's going to be some type of supernatural peace and harmony that even goes down to the details of like the violence of the animal kingdom. How wild is that? Have any, have any of your parents in the room heard about these books, Who Would Win? Have you guys seen these for your kids? Yes? Oh my gosh. Okay, so there's these Who Would Win books. My, I have a five-year-old boy, three-year-old boy. They're all, they're all into animals and battles. And it's hilarious. It's like, it'll be like a tournament of different insects, like fighting each other to the death, like at the end, and sharks and alligators and like all, all like dinosaurs. And it's wild. Like we kind of thought this would be cute for, you know, it's for them to like read about animals battling. And then I'll never forget, I'm like reading, reading the one where it was, it was called The Ultimate Reptile Rumble. And it ends up being uh, the finals after like 16 animals entered in. It was a, an anaconda versus a crocodile. Who, who do you guys think would win, anaconda versus crocodile? Yeah, anaconda. And, but listen, that anaconda, literally, the, the, you turn the page to like the final, like the climax of the battle, and it's literally an anaconda swallowing a crocodile whole, like into, <laughs> into its belly. And I'm like reading this with my three-year-old, and I'm like, 
Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess that is what it, what it would do. It's violent. The, the animal kingdom, I mean, it truly, it truly is violent. And, and shockingly, Isaiah's like, somehow the type of wholeness that God is going to bring about through the only qualified ruler, Jesus, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring shalom and peace even to that realm. You see this, like Isaiah is saying, we're, we're not hoping that Jesus can kind of make our lives a little bit better or make this world a little bit better. He, he's going to bring a new world that's been made whole and holy. Holy meaning that God's presence has been reunited with creation in such a way that it's been transformed completely. Like, like it's, it is now congruent with his character. It fits together. And really all the, the stuff with the animals that he was writing about, it's, it's really a great illustration of, of verse nine, this point that he's making. He says, they will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. Why? For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. And listen, Isaiah, he, he is saying to us, to, to his generation and then to ours, he's saying, put your hope here. Like, like only here. This king, that day, like there, there's coming a day when King Jesus, he'll make the whole world whole and holy. No more pain, no more tears, no more loss because there is no more sin. Look at how he finishes this. Verse 10. He says, on that day, and, and guys, that's, that's the language of hope. It's to have both of your feet planted on this day because this is where you have to live. But then to, to say in faith on that day, because God's word has told me on that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. Did you catch that Jesus is now seen as not just the shoot kind of coming out of the stump of Jesse, but he calls him the root, the originator of Jesse. This reminds us, right, of Revelation 22, the end of the story where Jesus says, hey, after all, I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then a few verses later, did you know that he actually then quotes this passage and says, I am the root and the descendant of David. The Apostle Paul, he took this, this language from, from Isaiah 11 in the book of Romans chapter 15 to make the point that, hey, Jesus is the hope of the whole world, not just for the Jews, not just for Israel. So I'm taking the gospel everywhere. Isaiah says that Jesus will stand as a, as a banner for all the nations. Listen, God, he wants this to be obvious, front and center, in front for everyone to see like this, this display that like hope, th this is grace, Okay, this is the biblical doctrine of grace, that we don't get what we deserve, that we don't figure this out, that we, we don't become good enough, but that God breaks in and he makes a way. He, he's going to hold up Jesus as this banner, this obvious display that anyone who wants this hope, anyone who's ready for it, anyone who's fed up with everything else failing them can have it by grace. And what does it mean even more specifically for, for Jesus to be this banner, this, this banner that's lifted up for all to see that we can look at and know we have hope. Well, in John chapter 12, Jesus says this about himself. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. 
And what did it look like for Jesus to be lifted up from the earth? Hebrews 10 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down, he he rested at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering on the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Perfected, that's the language of wholeness. Sanctified, the language of holiness. This banner is King Jesus on his cross, making his people whole and holy by by offering himself as a sacrifice for sins. Later on, Isaiah, in his own language, chapter 53, he sees it and puts it like this. He says, by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus was was lifted up on the cross and then he was raised from the grave as a signal, as a banner for all people that a new world is coming. That the healing of the whole universe has actually already begun in the people of God. Isaiah, he, he calls this the remnant in our last verse, verse 11. He says, on that day, The Lord, I love this, he he will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people who survive from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the coasts and the islands of the West, all people. The only hope of the world is bound up in one man. And he is like a branch growing up out of a stump. Okay, he is... He is our salvation. He, listen, he's your salvation growing up out of your judgment. If you, if you feel like and realize that you can't get to God, that, that you are a failure, that you are a sinner, he is, he is your salvation coming out of your judgment. A banner to all people that we can't save ourselves, but God delights to save sinners. And Isaiah says he has... He has extended his hand. Grace. He is right now, th- this morning, he's, he's calling people to himself. Isaiah says he's, he's recovering the remnant that remains of his people from the whole earth. And here's the key for us, at, w- again, with our two feet on the ground in this day, looking forward to that day, as we follow him, okay, as you follow him in the nitty gritty of your life and as you, as you take a chance this Advent season to remember this hope, You believe that the fruit of his leadership is going to be a renewed universe. That's where he's taking you. That's where he's taking all of us, a universe that will be whole and holy. And so we don't listen to the lies. We we choose to to chart our course, okay, on this hope alone, in this Jesus. He's, He's with us on this day as we wait for him to bring about that day. Let's pray. Father, we, we uh, come before you now and we marvel at your plan, Lord. God, nations have risen and fallen. People have tried to figure out a way for this world to be whole without you. It hasn't worked. God, we, we've tried so many things in our own lives, so many uh, strategies of self-rescue. We've, 
we've tried to figure out how we can be more disciplined, how we can be more moral, how we can do the right things. God, we've, we have tried to change. We've tried to manufacture change around us. God, it, it doesn't work. We, can, we confess freshly this morning our uh, trusting in ourselves and trusting in other things instead of you. And we, and we just fall at your feet and say, Jesus, oh Lord, help us. You are our only hope. Lord, we, those of us that are, that are in Christ, we, we believe that, but God, help our unbelief. There, there are so many competing saviors in this world. We want to kind of freshly cling to you this morning. God, and please, please help us with our feet planted on the ground in this current moment to more than anything long for that day and chart the whole course of our life because of it. It's in your son's name that we pray, Lord. Amen.